Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Spring Semester 2023. Today, free cash flow. We are coming to the end of our journey here rather quickly, surprisingly. I'll have a quiz on Wednesday. It's not going to be a bad one, and I'll tell you what I'll do. <coughs> Maybe a few true and false, multiple choice, nothing hard there. And then I'll have you do a weighted average cost of capital. But I will give you the component costs, the cost of equities and the cost of debt. And, but I'll, I'll put a column where the market value of each is, so you have to calculate the weights and then do the whack. But you won't have to calculate the actual R's themselves. I'll give those to you. So if you know how to use Excel and that's some product uh, function, it should be a very straightforward exercise. And then I'll do an NPV and an IRR, but those aren't too bad either. So, and then we'll cruise in and you'll have a little breathing room for before the next quiz. I also noticed a lot of you are getting finished with your um, Excel course. It's ca coming up fast, the end of the semester, but looks like you're doing pretty well. Remember, you have to have that done by the last day of regular classes, the uh, Excel certification, if you're doing that. And most of you are just doing really well in it, although some of you, I noticed you took a little time off. You started it, then you kind of backed away, and now you're starting again. But anyway, enough of that. Let me turn on the uh, grinder here and have a look at the markets just to see how sad everything is right now. It's, it's just one of those days on the, on the street. It's nothing spectacular. It's just... Uh, well, maybe it'll warm up here, it'll get it going here. Oh, there we go. Hmm. As you can see, it's a bare day, but I mean, it's just like a really, almost a flat day. Just a little bit, it's one of those, uh, like a morning you wake up, you don't feel terrible, but you're just in a crabby mood kind of day. They, the markets have been trying to come back. They were down a little stronger, as you can see, early in the, in the morning. And now they're trying to kind of crawl back up to a positive place. But there's just not a whole lot of really great news. It's a quiet world out there right now. The, the Fed has made its uh, intentions known. And the overall market is just sort of looking toward the economy. And we'll talk about that here in a minute. But as you can see, the Dow is down just barely. See how it's crawling? It's almost the spark chart showing that it's almost back to break uh, to even from the opening. And then the um, S&P is down just 0.13. And the NASDAQ isn't down that much more at 0.18. It's just kind of a dull day and as you can see oil is really taking a drop now it probably will cross back into the 70s uh, $70 barrel range $79 a barrel by the end of the day there's just enough evidence of strong supply and interestingly enough weak demand 
that the crude prices can't just can't sustain those high levels that uh, the uh, oil companies would really like to have. So that's good news because the lower fuel prices will keep the economy from having a severe shock uh, that could send it into a recession. Um, gold is just barely keeping that magic number of $2,000 an ounce. It, the, the gold bugs are hell-bent on keeping it above there, but I don't know if it's going to make it in silver too. Now, the euro versus the dollar. Uh, we are above the 109 neckline, so it costs a buck nine and change to get uh, a euro. But as you can see, that is way down from where it was. It's it's dropping. So that uh, whether or not that's good news or bad news, the one thing is the scuttlebutt about well the dollar is going to be taken off the stage. Uh, the major currency of the world is, might be. There's a lot of talk about something called BRICS, uh, which is a combination of currencies of uh, appallingly weak currencies, uh, India, Iran, China, and who's the other one in that BRICS mess? Um, there's another one, but none of them are strong enough to replace the dollar. Ten-year bond, yield is up, price is down. Now that's interesting because if the price is down, that means that their investors are selling bonds. But interestingly enough, they're not going to equities. So that would probably mean that they're just moving money, uh, moving their funds into cash because it's like a wait and see. As you can see, there's nothing happening and everyone's waiting for some, something exciting to happen here. And going over here, euro and the pound, see, uh, the euro and the pound are both weakening today against the dollar, which is good news. And the yen is too. The yen is marked backwards, as I've told you. It's weakening as well. London started out doing well, and then it just kind of fizzled out. And before that, Tokyo just there wasn't anything happening in Tokyo today. Let me show you um, an instructional. Anyone know anything about what's going on with the uh, company that has the trading symbol Bud? <laughs> anything? Well, what? Um, well, they did some stuff that some other consumers don't really like. They pissed off a some of their consumers by uh, getting a little bit too forward with some of their social consciousness. And it's, you know, it's one of those things, you make missteps, and there was all this doom saying about it's the end of Budweiser, ha ha, lol. Well, let's have a look and see. Oh, well, geez, it's up. Well, what's been going on? Notice that, let's look at the one month chart. There was the cliff, and then, look at that, it's coming back. This is the point, is that marketing mistakes, and I'll talk some more about that today in this lecture, it's kind of an interesting lecture about business decision making, is that, yeah, you can have short-term, market-driven drops, based upon initial reactions to events. In this case, they made a marketing move. Actually, it was not a major marketing move, but it was blown way out of proportion. 
and investors following the sentiments of the uh, uh, community reacted with a large boom like that. But then it's recovering and now look at this, a longer term uh, return toward intrinsic value. Don't really go crazy over the news of the day. This is the end of Bud because they put a rainbow on a damn can, for God's sake. Look at fundamentals. Don't let your personal feelings be involved. Anheuser-Busch sells beer. It sells beer with big horses and big women, for God's sake. Excuse me for that. But they, they know what they're doing, and they're not going to go away because they pissed off a few consumers. This is how real investing works. It works not on our own human emotions and all that. It works on the driving dynamics of cash flow. And cash is king. And we'll see that again today as we look at, and on Wednesday, as we look at some companies and their free cash flow situations. So, yeah, they'll have a ding in their, in their earnings. And then... But at the same time, for heaven's sakes, it's beer. People have been drinking beer for about, what, 6,000 years. And they're not going to quit because of a, uh, drinking a very popular brand because of one can. However, there are things that can be longer-term mistakes. One of them that I'll bring up today, and I, it used to be in the book. I don't know if it's in the current edition or any of the recent editions. Like IBM made a bad decision oh probably oh god it's been 40 years ago i hate to say that back when i was uh young uh when they were in and this goes to today's lecture they were in the business ibm had been in the business of mainframes and i mean back decades they were building computers and then the 70s were came in and toward the end of the 70s this new thing called PCs personal computers started showing up at first they were just geek stuff uh, you had to write a lot of code and then IBM used its expertise in mainframes and it started selling computers for people for you know for businesses and for upper middle class uh, consumers and it, they, of course, they dominated the market. They were one of the first, and their name was known by everybody, and they went head on into it. Fantastic decision. But then the morons who were running IBM, the old guard, said, we're a mainframe company, and this PC thing is just kind of a flash in the pan, and it's taken away from our main business, which is big mainframe computers, big high-cost high mainframes. And they stopped doing PCs, and of course then that was the opening for uh, HP, Compaq, Dell, Intel, all of those companies to just pour in because the winner the apex predator had walked off the field. Bad decision. IBM actually, to a certain extent, took years, and it really never has recovered from that giant marketing mistake. So understand the difference between a mistake that is epic in its proportions and mistakes that are mistakes of the day and the trends and, uh, to some extent, the fads. 
Know the difference. Be good business thinkers. The long run is the place where we will spend the future, not the short run. I've bitched at you enough about that. But this goes to that whole point, and we talk about that in this chapter of the book, which is one thing that I do like is that it's not all about mathy stuff. The math isn't actually that hard. It's Excel stuff. But the thinking behind it, business decision-making, is important. <coughs> <coughs> But uh, so so there you are. Uh, on uh, Twitter, I was I was raging about this, uh, telling these people stop scaring people and stop telling them to change their investment patterns. It doesn't work that way. And of course, I got my head eaten off by the day traders and the hot dogs and the right wingers. Now, I've gone through some of this lecture before. I've talked about free cash flow before. And again, this is where we distinguish ourselves from accounting. Because in our business, uh, we need to know what the actual cash flow of the corporation is. The money coming in, the money going out, the real stuff not the accounting numbers. Now, interestingly enough, accounting hits us in a couple of ways here because some of the things that they do in accounting have effect on taxes, and therefore they have an effect, even though they didn't really happen, they have an effect on what happens as, uh, as a result uh, of accounting uh, procedures. And uh, so it's, I, I do the relationship, I, as most of you know, uh, know I've told you, I, I used to run a ghost hunting club here, and there were times when there wasn't a ghost, but everyone went crazy and they stomped all over each other, sprained ankles, broken bones and things like that, running out of a place just because a noise happened, but there was a real effect from something that didn't actually exist. So keep that in mind when we do this. But when we're talking about, and and again, this sounds like a repeat, and I, I intend for that. I try to bring things up a couple of times before I hit them over the head. Here's where we have to talk about the importance of incremental cash flows. The extra that is brought in by a project that is going to be undertaken. Now, there are two kinds of projects. There are expansion projects and where there is new revenue, incremental, extra, marginal, as whatever you want to call it, revenue. And then there are also replacement projects, too. And these are different because it's not extra money coming in, it's extra money not being spent. So if I go from one type of vehicle to another type of vehicle, I might be doing so to cut my expenses. Going from uh, gas or diesel vehicles to electric vehicles, that decision would be made based not upon extra revenue coming in, but some cost saving that would be involved in it. So do know that, and in this case, 
like if you had the old car took $15,000 a year, the new car takes 10000 So in other words, we would say the incremental savings was positive $5,000 on, on a replacement project. And interestingly enough, these expansion is always exciting. Replacement is kind of a duller thing. And companies, sometimes they put off replacement for a long time. So you might want to keep that in mind, is that sometimes the, the replacement of one fa machine with another machine isn't sexy, but at the same time, you could be surprised at the positive net present value that you get from it. Okay, incremental cash flows. Now on the revenue side, we make a, a, we're going to pull in money from this project. It's going to bring in some extra stuff for us, uh, some extra money. And that's always, that, that, that's definitely what you're trying to do with an expansion. You're not going to do it for your health. You're going to do it because there is going to be more revenue being generated by it. And then on the other side, there are the incremental costs, the extra costs that are associated with it. Now on the revenue side, let me go back to the revenue side. We... Oftentimes, there's an over-optimism on revenue. The revenue, we're going to make money right off the bat. This is going to sell like hotcakes and all of that. And that's not necessarily the case. Oftentimes, you have a grinding start. Good God, how, how we didn't make hardly anything off this this year. And that's simply consumer behavior. They have to become aware of it. That's where marketing comes in. And you cannot ignore the marketing costs. That's an important thing. And it's something that is ignored far too often. When you're bringing something new to the market, you've got to make first consumer awareness your top priority. Hey, we've got this. Look at this. And you can't say, well, we'll put it on the shelves and people will see it there. It's not going to work that way. Not in our world the way it is now. And that's where another part of it comes in that is much newer. And that's your generation is the power of social media and the network of people talking to people and the influencers and their effect upon product awareness. Not necessarily adoption, just making people aware of it oftentimes. And companies are still not good at this at all. Uh, if you go on like Facebook or Twitter, you'll have these companies put up an ad. There's your damn social media right there. And people will just scroll right by it. You've got to lock them in. Get their attention for just a few seconds. Stop. What am I seeing here? And use all of the old techniques, flash, bang, you use sex appeal, you use drama, you use anything to get them to stop just long enough to look at the product and visually identify it. We don't do that enough. So you marketing people out there, you're a big, huge part of this. And also the salespeople are too. If it's a sales, uh, salespeople uh, have to be involved in this too, driving this forward. Okay, so 
There's going to be a crawl though. It's going to rise, not dramatically at first for most products. Even if it's a well-known brand, they might not, people might not identify it. And also consumer inertia. They might not be willing to try something new because you've already got something. Well, what does this do that that other product doesn't do? Kind of thing. So that's a, going to be a part of this as well. But it's going to be a grind, and you're going to have to expect that there's going to be probably, well, okay, let me not go into that right now. I'm going to come back to revenues here in a minute. But costs, costs up front, it's not going to be just a matter, well, we buy this damn machine and we get going. No, there's going to be more than that. There's going to have to be a phase where you find out if the project is viable. And then you're going to have to say, go. And that will mean building inventory. Before you ever get any of that uh, sales, you damn well better have inventory in the warehouse, in the uh, stores. You've got to build that. And that's a cost up front. So in other words, at the beginning of a project, you might have year zero, among your costs, there's no revenue, but among your costs is this whopping inventory accumulation. So that's free cash flow out as you build that inventory. Now this is the part I, it's, if, don't think about it too much. Okay, once you've got that initial cost, let's say it's $50,000. Okay, so in year one, you sell off that $50,000 of inventory and you replace it with $50,000 of new inventory. I'm being simple about this. But that means that there's no net cash flow effect. Inventory sold, inventory brought in. So in other words, at the beginning, there's this big whopping uh, free cash flow out as you buy inventory. But then from there, it actually can stay relatively level, although you probably in each year, if it's a popular product, you'll have a little more inventory in than inventory out. But then at the end of the project, when you turn this thing off, you will sell off the last of your inventory. So that in the final year of the project, there will be this big cash flow in as you sell the inventory, but you don't replace it. So in other words, initially there's going to be a big cash flow out as you build the inventory. Then through the years of the project, it will stay relatively level. And the in, uh, in and out are balanced pretty much. But then at the end, you'll get this nice punch of free cash flow as you sell off inventory, but don't replace it as you wind the project down. So as a cost, that, that's one thing. And of course, the cost of the equipment and all that, that all comes into it too. Now, going back to revenue. Now we talk about the killers in uh, revenue, for example. The one thing that we don't want to do is cannibalize an existing product. If, you're, if you say, well, the incremental cash flows off this on the first year will be, let's say, $100,000, is there any damage being done to products you already have? If so, that has to be a minus from the overall re revenue. Extra revenue from the project, but extra loss of revenue from others that we had already online. 
So in other words, you don't want cannibalization to happen. And here's one of the things that can get really nasty about cannibalizing. You ever notice that there's a Starbucks almost on every quarter anymore? You know, overpriced, overroasted coffee that everyone lines up clear out to the road to get. Okay, now you're Starbucks and you decide, okay, we're going to put up another Starbucks one block from where we have a Starbucks. Okay, that would be a bad idea because you would cannibalize. You have a nice Starbucks here, so you're going to put up a Starbucks a, a block or two blocks away. Well, that's going to cannibalize revenue from the Starbucks that you already have. Except that you might put it up anyway. Why would you put up a Starbucks that close to another Starbucks if the new one was going to cannibalize revenue from the old one? Why would you do that? And you probably should do that. Can you think of anything? Yeah? There's so much demand that they can uh, split it into two restaurants. They might. There might be over, overflow demand. No question about that. I mean, they, you know, there are people who just pull away if they see a line, and if they got two of them, that might mean that they get some, yeah? It's a franchise, and like, you're the company, and you've already gotten paid for it. Like, you know, well, yeah, I mean, there's that. I mean, some suckers bought a franchise. I'm going to let them have it, yeah? I was just going to say, like, the more you see it. Oh, there's saturation, market saturation. There is nothing but Starbucks. There's another problem. If you don't put the Starbucks, that new Starbucks there, some other company like Gloria Jeans could put one there. And then you've lost revenue for good. Otherwise, you split the revenue, but if some son of a bitch puts one right on the next corner that has decent coffee, and they see that line of Starbucks, and they say, oh, Gloria Jeans, that's pretty good coffee. You see, you might actually be willing to cannibalize some revenue to block a competitive entry to your product. You might put more, and in some cases, you'll see one of the fascinating ones is in saturation. Uh, have you been into a store lately, gone to the soap section? Do you notice how Dove has saturated their buying space and they're not selling all of that? Those bars of soap are sitting there. Why are they doing that? Because they're crowding out the competition by doing that. Gillette is doing that. Other companies are saturating so that competitors don't have room to come in. And they're willing to hurt their revenues by doing that just because they can keep others from dominating the field. Sometimes you take ground not because you need the ground, but because you need to keep the others from gaining that ground. And you make sure that everyone is aware that that's going to happen. CVS was putting up their CVSs almost on every corner, for God's sake, simply because they wanted to dominate the corner spaces so that Walgreens couldn't come in and plop a store down. Uh, this is classic. And so you see the decision isn't always as simple as you might think it is, simply because... Um, you've got to think not just about your own company, but about your competitors. You assume that they're as greedy as you are, and that they are, well, why are you putting a product there? We've already got this market. What are you doing? Well, they're son of a, sons of bitches just like you are. 
They'll do what they can to take revenue away from you. That's the reality of capitalism. It hurts like hell, but it also makes us efficient and it makes our decision-making cleaner because we have to think of all of the dimensions that are involved. <sighs> so, that, so there is something to think about. With, and I've already talked about this, but I will talk about it again. Products that are complements to each other, and this goes to something about what you folks were saying, is that putting products up so that there is so much awareness of your product that you don't even think about another product that might be as good. Just putting it everywhere. And so sometimes you'll put up a product, not because there is a need in the consumers for this new product, but simply because it expands the line of your products so that there is no question that people will think of your product first when they think of beer or something like that. That goes back to the Budweiser uh, little kerfuffle is that they have the market. For God's sake, they have the market. You think of Anheuser-Busch, uh, and that's not going to be damaged by some butthurt, uh, temporary butthurt. That's the reality of it. Just dominate. Just take as much as you can, as fast as you can, and then leave your competitors crying into their cups. Uh, revenue. Uh, and also, complementary products, building a line where they feed each other. Like I've told you about printers, you build the printers, not so much for the printers, but because of the inks that you can sell for the printers. You can even sell your own brand of paper. This printer works best with our paper because it's our printer. Lol. No, it doesn't. It works with anyone. But of course, wow, I own an HP printer, so I better buy HP paper because I want to be cool. Uh, you just build a, a something so that there is all of this stuff that goes with it. It becomes more than just a product. It becomes part of the lifestyle, part of the habit of the people that you are selling it to. Make it, and also that is important generation, intergenerationally. I'm going to tell you a, a horrible, horrible thing. I know what you're going to look like in 40 years. Thir uh, no, in 30 years. And I actually do know that because I've taught for 40 years. I see, I've taught people's kids. And I just ran into someone's grandkid. Do you know how that pissed me off? <laughs> I'm serious. But someday you're going to look in the mirror in 50 years, 30 years, and you're going to see mom jeans, Jordash. You're going to see a mom shirt, and you're going to see mom makeup. And all of a sudden you're going to scream, Ah! I'm my mom! You are. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. We hook one generation. Their kids are going to see those products, and they're going to go for those products too, generation after generation. That is a synergistic building. And you add new products, make it look modern, but make it look like it's traditional at the same time. Give the same label, and you'll have the people there for it. That's just the reality of it. People are like that. <coughs> But there, there's on the revenue side. And also, as products come out, they do generate an, another part, too. As you create an image of your products, that is an externality 
that helps with the brand loyalty. As you bring new products forward, you don't sit on your fat ass like J.C. Penney did with the stores that you could still smell your grandma in when you walked in. No, seriously. I mean, it was even the bell, that boom, boom. I remember that as a kid. What the hell? Don't you have a better dinger now? But um, that's you want to keep the modernization going. Feed the dragon, as we say, so that it still breathes fire into your revenues generation after generation. Target was a classic example. They were, they were criticized heavily for revamping all of their stores some years back. They knew what they were doing. They were just staying modern so that they could keep that synergy of the revenues going. Why are you building this new store? Because it is kicky and modern. It doesn't necessarily do revenues in and of itself, but it keeps our image alive and young. Okay, now on the cost side. First things first, sunk costs, S-U-N-K, sunk costs. Do not let what you have already spent have anything whatsoever to do with your decisions. Don't let it. Fight that urge because that is a death knell. If you have already spent money on the feasibility, we, well, we've looked at the marketing for this product and we know that we can sell this many and this many and we have these costs. We've got that part of the project done. That cost us $800,000. That $800,000 is not to be used in the capital budgeting for the NPV. You know where that $800,000 is? It's with Jesus. It's gone. Keep gambling. Yeah, yeah. You can't talk about the money you've already spent. No matter how much it pisses you off that you spend it, it's already spent. You know what that means? That means that you spend real fast and then you can say, that's a sunk cost I can't even worry about anymore. Okay? Don't worry about sunk costs. Do not put sunk costs into it. It has to be what is going to happen because what has already happened, it's done. And you can't change it. You can't fix it. You can't get that money back because it's already in heaven funding a, a new uh, suite of condos. Or I don't, do they have condos? No, I don't know, but it, you, you understand what I mean. Okay. Now, other parts of this. Sunk costs are a bad thing. Opportunity costs. Opportunity cost is the cost of the best foregone alternative. Opportunity cost is the cost of the best foregone alternative. You have to say, what could I have done with my assets instead of this? Is there something else I could have done? Well, we've got this land here, so we, it, it's costless for us to use it for this project. No, it's not because you could have sold it. No, it's not because you could have used it for a different project. We've already got these employees, so we'll just repurpose them to this. No, that's a very bad idea because what you've done is you have removed that employee from, a, from someplace, so that employee is a new cost of the new project. And there are so many times, so many times this happens where they don't see these assets that they already own as being a, an example of that. Just uh, a couple of, well, that was last year. There was a company in Peoria. They had several backhoes that they, uh, and some other um, heavier equipment. And they were talking about 
what they, uh, this project, and they, that they were thinking of doing, building a new uh, warehouse. And they said, well, we've got the equipment to do it, so that's not going to be a cost of this project. Like, hell, it's not. You could have sold that. You could have sold those machines. Well, we didn't want to sell them. So what? There's still a cost of this project because you could have done something else with them, like sold them or leased them to some other company. They are a cost of this project. Well, I'm not doing anything today, so I guess, you know, maybe I'll go to class. Well, yeah, you could have been working, so whether or not you come to this class, you gave up an hourly wage to be here instead. So that is a real cost. And actually, truth be told, that is far higher than your tuition. The opportunity cost of what you could have done instead of being here listening to some geezer like me talking to you uh, like this. So in other words, you've got to consider that this, this university is awfully expensive. We know this, and there's so much data. In recessions, enrollment goes up, especially at community colleges and trade uh, schools. Uh, enrollment goes way up. Why? Because the opportunity cost of the people's time is going down, so tuition, uh, the total cost of college goes down. In a roaring, robust economy, a lot of people are just going to go right into the workforce if they can pull $20, $25 an hour. Not that they should because of the, the investment part of it, but that's another part. So on the cost side, be wary of costs that are all written down on accounting statements. Well, we got this quote on this, we got it, and so here's all our costs. Well, what are all those hidden costs, those indirect costs? Well, we can't really estimate them. Do so. Find a way. Because if you don't, your project probably will fail. And I've told you about the classic example of this uh, boondoggle in uh, our sister city here where they put up that uh, stadium uh, thinking that they, and they missed opportunity costs of the land, of all of the other things. Well, we, there's already a police force in town, so we're, we, we don't have to worry about that. Well, you're going to have to worry about that because you're going to have to have extra security, and you're also going to probably have some other problems that way. And then the revenue side of it, they were laughably considering that their consumer universe was 60-mile radius, which included the Peoria Civic Center and also included a whole lot of farmland of people who don't go to stadiums for shows and stuff like that. So anyway, that's a little bit of the bitching about revenues and costs. Always watch out for externalities, no question about that. The externalities of cannibalism, the externalities of costs, and another thing too is the book touches on this, but it's, it's, they do almost a touchy-feely thing about environmental uh, considerations and safety considerations, is when you're considering costs, you might be able to get by with, well, we're in compliance with environmental regulations. We're in compliance with safety regulations and be done with it at that. And that's a fool's game for several reasons. One is, you might be using some new kind of technology that will trigger 
new regulations and bite that will bite you in the ass. These electric vehicles guarantee you within five years the government is going to come in and crack down on electric vehicles. Disposal of the batteries, safety hazards during accidents, the whole nine yards. And so you might have to think not about what's happening now, but what is going to what you're going to cause to happen down the road. And even if you can keep in compliance with the safety regulations, there are two other issues too. You might piss off consumers enough that they will turn away from your product with your practices. And then there's another one too. The idea that most companies have, as long as we meet all of these check marks on the federal and state regulations, we're okay. There's no liability. Bullshit. You can still be hanged in a civil suit even if you are in compliance. We did everything, CCC, we did all these uh, regulatory oversights and all this, and you can still end up hundreds of millions of dollars in the hole because it wasn't what the law said, it was what you should have done. If you kill people with your product, you make them sick, well, you're still exposed even if you can say we followed the letter of the law and the regulations. So always keep that in mind. And don't be overly optimistic. Don't close your eyes to all of the things that could happen. Open them and see what can be done up front to make sure that doesn't happen. Enough of that <laughs> bitching about those kinds of subjects here. Incremental cash flows. Uh, give you a couple of important examples here and then I'm going to do a little bit of lightweight Excel and I'm going to pull up some companies uh, financial statements and just do a little lightweight version of this just so that you know that it is not as freaky as it possibly could be the one thing is that what we are looking for is and I've written this one down before free cash flow now technically what I'm doing here is called unleveraged or unlevered free cash flow. And I'll explain the difference here later, but in this case, you take your EBIT, which is another word for operating income. And you multiply that by one minus your marginal tax rate. So that's your after tax operating start, no pat, net operating profit after taxes. You notice that we don't subtract interest. That's the unlevered part. Uh, I, I, we don't sub, uh, subtract uh, interest, in, interest expense, I'm sorry. You don't subtract interest expense because it's not operating. This is all about operations themselves. The things that slurp money out and put money in. All those other things, they're, yeah, but those things we deal with at the free cash flow line. Can we pay this bill? Can we add more debt? Can we pay more interest? Well, we've got free cash flow of uh, $84 million. Well, if we borrow some more money to leverage and do a new project, can we afford that interest? Can we afford the interest we have? Can we afford more interest? <laughs> Same is true at the dividend line, okay? The free cash flow is going to tell us whether we can pay a dividend or not. 
and if we can, how much should it be, and all that kind of stuff. So in this operating part, all we're caring about are the things that actually drain cash and add cash. That's why, by the way, and I've said this before, there was a, some period of time when most, a lot of universities were, had abandoned this course called short-term financial management or short-term cash management. And now suddenly it's coming back into vogue because more and more companies are realizing Oh, cash is king. And as a matter of fact, I'm teaching a course, we've just brought it back a few years ago, uh, in that subject. And surprisingly enough, there, some of my students are now getting jobs in corporate treasury departments, finance departments, simply because they are trained in this classic, old-fashioned, cash is king concept. Now, the next thing we're going to do here is we are going to add back the depreciation expense. Now it was hidden in here in EBIT. Sometimes they put the line, sometimes they don't put the line, but it's in there and the, it's not a real thing, but it has a real effect. Simply because it creates, see, if you got your depreciation expense in there, there's not as much tax to pay. It didn't happen in reality, but it had an actual positive effect on our tax bill. And a little, a little mention about that too, is that an interesting thing, some of you, unfortunately you've all been psychologically abused because they made you take accounting courses here, but at the same time, the, the, the I, uh, there's a, a thing. Suppose that you're a company and you're thinking about what can we do with some of our money. And you see a company that is flat on its back. It's dead. It's, you know, uh, it, it's, it's moribund. You, know, you bury it with its butt sticking up and you've got a bicycle rack. Uh, whatever. But you see, one of the interesting things though is that what you can sometimes do is if you buy that company, they've got all of these tax losses because they were dying for a couple of years. They've got losses that they, can, they can't use. The company's dead, but if a company buys them, they come back to life. These, uh, these non-cash things come back to life and they can lower your tax bill too because essentially those are tax, uh, those tax uh, loss, those uh, tax loss carry forwards, carry backs can be quite valuable. So sometimes when you see a dead company or a company near death, its value is a lot more than what you see on the books because there's all of these, uh, essentially these uh, zombie tax uh, losses that could be brought to life if it's in a company that has positive tax bills. But anyway, and then you add back the depreciation expense because it didn't really happen. And then you have these other two happy lives. You have to take away the actual capital expenditures that really happened, and you have to take away the change in net operating working capital. 
Now that change in net operating working capital, I have found that some people, yeah, I see that right away, and other people just can't quite get their heads around it. So I take a very technical approach. I say, here's Excel, do this, do this, and then you've got the change in net operating working capital. As a matter of fact, I'm going to do that in just a couple of minutes here. But um, this change, the one place I just mentioned it, when you had your inventory, that first inventory at year zero, you build up your inventory in your warehouses so you can start using it in year one. That means that your inventory, current asset, went up from nothing, it went to a positive. That's a loss in free cash flow. But then in the next year, when you get rid of that inventory by selling it and bring in just as much inventory as new inventory, there's no change in net operating working capital. But then in that last year, you've got 50000 in the warehouse and you get rid of that so that current asset goes from the 50000 down to zero. That's a change, uh, uh, that's a negative change in a current asset, which is a positive free cash flow. That's why we have this change in net operating working capital. Let me show you one. I'm going to pull up. I, I should not do this, but I might. Now I go to scc.gov, and I'm going to go over here to filings, company filing search. What do you want to see? Huh? Don't say Tesla. I will. Yeah. What is? Yeah. Entertainment arts. Oh, gee. Imagine that. Okay, I'm going to go to the 10K here. See? Ooh, that's long in the past. We'll use it, though. You can tell that they're about to issue a new annual report. See how their last one, the annual, was almost a year ago. So they're due for a new one here in just a, probably within a month or so. I'm look, curious. Let me look at something real quick here. 8Ks. What the hell? Costs associated with exit or disposal. What did they get rid of recently? Um, I don't know the full details, but they had some sort of like offline server for one of the products that they did. Uh, what was it, like a streaming service? Oh, I guess I did hear about that. And I do this at this point just to get you back into that mode. We're professionals, and so we don't go to uh, places like Wikipedia or Investopedia. We go to the animals that create the, ca uh, the chaos. We go right to the mouth of the beast and look at the original filings. Remember, what is put here has legal, criminal, and civil consequences if there are material misstatements. So you can pretty much rely on what's in these as being the, the word of God or goddess or whatever. Just curious. Complete submission. Oh God. <laughs> uh, if an emerging growth can indicate a check mark, wait. 
Board of Directors approved restructuring plan focusing on prioritizing investments to the company's growth opportunity. Good God, that's corporate speak. The plan includes action driven by portfolios. <laughs> do not get too worried about this fancy language. We do this to get the uh, hillbillies to stop reading. Don't worry about it. It's their, uh, this is corporate speak. The plan includes actions driven by portfolio rationalization, including intellectual property, impairment charges, and headcount reductions, impacting approximately 6% of the company's workforce, in addition to office space reductions. I see that, and uh, I just go bl a blank until I see 6%. Okay, that was the important thing, 6% re reduction in workforce. Okay, good news. That was all there was to that. So let me get that off here and let's go here to the, now again, just so in case you forget how to do this, the 10K, we go find a 10K and we click on the box. Don't click on that or it'll scare you because that'll be the original, the whole document. You click here, filing, and then you go up here and you click this little blue interactive data. And if I do this enough, you won't forget it. And now you can look at the financial statements right here, and I can look at all of them if I want to. But every public company, and we're talking about hundreds of thousands, they must submit them in standardized Excel form. That's why we bitch so much about getting you strong in Excel. Not so you can say, yeah, I've seen it, but because, so that you can say, yeah, I can use it. And I'm not scared of this. I can just look at it and say, oh, goody, look at, there's how many, a zillion tabs, a zillion worksheets, and you know exactly what to do. You don't look at everything around you. You go for the things that you are going to want. Now, generally speaking, in a finance, in finance, and even to some extent in marketing and in operations, you want to have your balance sheet right where you can get your paws on it. You want to have your consolidated statement of operations. That's a fancy name for the income statement. Uh, I wish they would go back to the way it used to be where everyone had to use the same names. And you'll also want to find the statement of cash flows. Ah, there it is. So what I'm going to do is I just grab it, hold down the cursor, and I put it over here. Between, well, actually, I think I'll scoot it to the other side of the consolidated statement of operations. Did I actually get it? Will you stop being difficult? Right there. Okay. Don't be afraid to alter your environment. This is just like any workspace that you're going to ever be in. You put your tools where you can reach them the most efficiently. That's the way it is on a factory floor. That's the way it is in a car uh, repair shop. We're doing the same thing. We move the assets to where they will serve us the most efficiently. I will be using the consolidated balance sheet and the statement of operations the most. The statement of cash flows right here, I will pick off the depreciation and amortization from there. And I go down here, 
in, uh, investment activities. Where the hell is their investment activity? There they are. And this is where capital expenditures happen. And I probably will look at net cash generated. Now you notice in the case of EA, they burned off $2.8 billion they spent, okay, net. Now you've got to be a little careful because, and I've said this before and now I'm going to say it again, you notice that you minus capital expenditures. They give it as a negative in here, so you probably would want to make the absolute value of this when you put it in, okay? Just, I mean, it drives me crazy that does, but uh, there you are. Now I'm going to show you the first thing. First things first is we're just going to create our own little worksheet here. Insert a worksheet and we'll call it free cash flow calculations. Make your work environment what you need. And what you need is a safe space right here so that you can get everything you want in. Now. We'll probably put in a few things here along the way, but I'm going to definitely need the EBIT. Well, first things first is I'll have 2021 and 2022. I think those were the years. I hate fiscal versus calendar years. Okay, so I'm going to need EBIT. Over here, I think I'll put this off on the side tax rate, and I'll put that at 21% just to start it off. And now I'll also need um, depreciation expense. Are you just trying to calculate your cash flows? That's all. I'm a simple person. I'm not trying to solve the world. I'm just trying to find the free cash flow. And uh, capital expenditures. Now, if you have never been told this, when you're doing professional kind of work, notice how I capitalize only the first word of these. This is old traditional, old school. And spell everything correctly, unlike your email messages to me. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Okay. Okay. Now, the next thing I'm going to do is net operating working capital. And then in this one, and you don't have to be as fancy as I am. Really? Symbol. Where's my delta? I want to make this look cool. There it is. That's right where I chose it. Close. N-O-W-C. Why the hell did that do that? Okay, fine. Highlight the whole damn sheet. And I'll choose my own font. Microsoft tries to make everyone use its silly fonts. I'll use something pretty. Georgia Pro. Yeah, there's... And then we'll put everything at 14 point. Okay. 
and then free cash flow. Now, what I'm going to do in the next, in Wednesday, I'm going to show you an actual company. I, I, I could actually show you two. And they each, in this example, it had a four-year project. And it was a real project. And I'll also put up a PowerPoint presentation that's kind of partly mine, partly other people's, where we broke down some companies and showed this. And it's, once you get the hang of it, it's not hard at all. Watch. So now what I'm going to do here, balance sheet. Well, let's do the consolidated statement. We might as well get operating income. Okay, so the free cash flow. Put it EBIT equals, and then I'll go over here to the consolidated income statement, and I'll grab that number right there. And then the depreciation expense, what I'll do is I'll reach here, and um, that was a statement of, consolidated statement of, where the hell is it? Oh, there it is. You'll hear me say that a lot. <laughs> where the hell is this thing? Okay. Capital expenditures. Professor, yeah. Oh, let me change these. There. Did I do the operate EBIT correctly? Let me let me check. Equals. Go back over here. Statement of operations. Uh, operating. Yeah, that was 2022. Total operating income. Yep. Okay. Now capital expenditures equals. Now this is the one that's in the book, in the sheet, negative. So I'm going to put absolute value of that one. And then I'll go over here. And I'll find from investing activities. Now, the net operating working capital, I'm going to cheat a little bit here. Balance sheet. Now the way you do this is my total current assets were right here. Okay, so I'm going to take for 2022, I'm going to take the net operating working capital. Whoops. I have to go back over here and say set in equals. Equals. Okay. And I'll go to the balance sheet and I'll take the current assets total current assets minus the total current liabilities there and now I'm going to do sweep this over now the net operating working capital I'm going to show you a little Excel trick. I don't know if they've got it in. But I want to take the current of the net operating working capital this year minus the net operating equals, try that again, net operating capital this year minus the net operating work, working capital last year. So you see that 
they actually bled. And now I'm going to do something here. See this? I'm going to format. And if you do alignment, horizontal, center across the selection, so that it shows it as a, for those two years. You ever seen that trick before? It's different from the merge and center because it still maintains the integrity of the two cells. The merge and center gets really hard when you start trying to reference it. Okay, so the free cash flow this year would equal the EBIT times one minus the tax rate. What are you bitching about? Let's try that again. Shut up. Equals EBIT oops, times one minus, I forgot to put in the minus, that, close the parentheses, plus the depreciation expense minus capital expenditures. I'm sorry, I said that was bleeding. That was actually an addition. God, they added 3.6 billion. Okay, okay. Now, did I subtract? No. Minus capital expenditures. You have a few minuses. I was just testing you to see if you knew that. Uh, minus the capital expenditures. See what happens when I talk and I'm trying to do Excel? That's the problem. When I'm at home, my cats and I talk and then I make mistakes in Excel. Okay. Minus net operating working capital. And so we'll see if electronics art has positive or negative free cash flow. Well, spank me, Jesus. Uh-oh. Do you see a mistake that I might have made? Let me look, look at something here. Those were in millions. Those were in millions. Those were in millions. They were all in millions. Oh, okay, I got it. I understand. I'm okay. So there, let me put this into a better frame. No. Let me do it this way. Format the cells. Currency. No decimal places. Their free cash flow last year was $2.185 billion. Now I'd have to do this. One of the things you notice is in order to do 2021, I'd need 2020's data and I have only the balance sheets for two years from where I was. So I can't do that. But if you look at it just on its own, they had unlevered free cash flow of $2.185 billion. That's what we call healthy. That means that unlevered, before they pay their interest expense, before they pay dividends, before they make any decisions about new debt 
and the interest it would cause. They have this much real money. Now, if that's a negative, and I won't mention any names, but <coughs> uh, that was negative. That wasn't an abstraction. That money had to have come from somewhere because that was the result of operations. So it can't just sit there as a negative. You have to ask yourself, where in the hell did they get that money to be able to pay those bills so the free cash flow wasn't negative? So that's the upshot of this. I see electronic arts, just on a quick note, damn, I wish I had free cash flow of even 2,000 damn dollars. That's all I have for you today. I thank you.